My name is Andy. I am the writer and the host of the No Remorse podcast. No Remorse is a British true crime podcast which tells the disturbing stories of some of Britain's worst killers. No Remorse is a no-holds-barred show, so you can expect graphic descriptions of extreme violence. It is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Each episode will focus on one offender or sometimes multiple offenders who have committed crimes which have shocked the nation. Psychopaths, sociopaths, savages, serial killers, spree killers and everything in between will be explored in great detail. You can find No Remorse on all major podcast providers including iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher and TuneIn. This episode of Outlines contains descriptions of a crime which some may find distressing, so listener discretion is advised. Today's episode starts in St Martin's Church in Suffolk. It's a small and unusually shaped brick structure, squat and angled, and it sits on the Trimley High Road, nestled between the twin villages of Trimley St Martin and Trimley St Mary, just a couple of miles away from the Port of Felixstowe. Back on September the 25th, 1999, inside the church, a congregation met for an 8am Holy Communion prayer book service. People sat, their heads bowed in silent prayer, and among them was 43-year-old Lorinda Hall. The thoughts of the gathered worshippers had turned to Lorinda. It had been a week now, and everyone in the close-knit Trimley communities had heard about her daughter. Everyone knew that in the early hours of the previous Sunday, the 19th of September 1999, Lorinda's 17-year-old daughter Victoria had gone missing after a night out with a friend. But it wouldn't be until after the service that the gathered congregation were to discover what Lorinda and her husband Graham had just been told, that there had been a terrible development in Vicky's story. Earlier today, the woman's body, believed to be that of missing teenager Vicky Hall, was removed from the protective tent that had been erected for forensic tests. Accompanied by a home office pathologist, it was taken to a nearby hospital for a post-mortem to be carried out. As soon as we know a cause of death, we'll give it to you. Um, Similarly, formal identification can't take place until after the post-mortem, and once that's taken place, we will confirm the identity. But at this time, it is fair to say we do believe it is probably the missing uh, teenager Vicky Hall. The partially submerged body was discovered in a ditch by a man walking his dog. The spot is close to the village of Creeting St Peter, about 25 miles from Miss Hall's home. It was Friday, September the 24th, around 7.30pm, five days after Vicky's disappearance, that Jim Armour, a resident of the small village of Creeting St Peter, took his dog Holly for a walk. They headed down the narrow and winding Pound Road, which led out of the village into farmlands and open countryside, a trek they'd made plenty of times previously, but had recently been inaccessible due to heavy rains and flooding. Jim and Holly made to turn onto a small bridleway, nestled in the dip of the landscape, but they'd only gone a few yards when the dog started to growl at something in the ditch which ran parallel to the footpath. Mr Armour, 
told the East Anglian Daily Times how he'd tried to call Holly away, but that, unusually, she was reluctant to go. Jim returned home without inspecting the ditch further, but it bothered him. He said, Some relatives were with us for the weekend, and I told them what I had seen, that there was something unusual about it. Returning to the bridal way, Jim realised what he had stumbled upon and immediately called the police. There, in the ditch, partially submerged was the naked body of a petite young woman, later confirmed to be the missing teenager, Victoria Hall. She hadn't been sexually assaulted, and while the doctor who carried out her post-mortem couldn't be sure, she appeared to have been suffocated. By the next morning, just as her grieving mother Lorinda was attending silent prayers, a troop of onlookers had descended on a field of stubble a few hundred yards away from where the body had been discovered. The normally deserted area surrounding Creting St Peter had become a hive of activity. Local and international news vans littered the landscape, their aerials raised to the sky, each vying for a shot of the forensic tent which that weekend would cover Jim Armour's discovery. Vicky's case was huge news, and police were anxious to charge someone quickly, to bring an end to Graham and Lorinda's suffering. In the aftermath, Jim Armour was quoted as saying, please, please, help find the fiend that killed her. But it's been 20 years this September, and despite two arrests and one acquittal, no one has ever been brought to justice for the murder of Victoria Hall. I'm Jess Carter, and this is the Outlines Podcast. Victoria Hall, known to others as Vicky, was born on the 3rd of October 1981 at the maternity block of Ipswich Hospital, 13 miles away from the ditch where her body would be found just shy of 18 years later. As a newborn, she weighed 6 pounds and 10 ounces. While she was still a baby, her family moved into their home in Trimley St Mary. The house was detached one of four set back in a courtyard just off of the Ark of Faulkner's Way, which formed a spine through the heart of Trimley's residential area, including the farmland's estate where their house was located. She had one younger brother, and together they would regularly go on seaside holidays with their grandparents. Her mother Lorinda was leader of the Discoverer's Children's Group at Walton Church, and both Vicky and her brother were members of the group. The Reverend there remembered her as bright, vivacious, with a warm smile. As a child, Vicky attended Trimley St Mary Primary School, before at the age of 11 moving up to Orwell High School in Felixstowe, just a few miles from her home. It was at Orwell that she took part in a production of the musical Chess, a role which inspired her to take dance lessons and to continue to perform in shows. She was a happy pupil who caused no trouble and was lucky enough to have found a best friend for life, 
the one who Vicky was with on her last night out. Her friend Gemma described their relationship as inseparable, telling a news conference, she was like a sister to me and I wish I could bring her back. She was my best friend and she'll be with me forever. By the time of her death, Vicky was studying for A-levels in sociology, business studies and English and dreaming of reading sociology at university. She was by all accounts a keen student, partaking in the Young Enterprise Project, a national scheme where schools set up mock firms which pupils ran as if real. As well as her schoolwork, she had continued with dance lessons, attending ballet classes twice a week in Ipswich, and was a keen lover of music, ballet, jazz and dance, just a few of her favourite genres. Her family weren't terribly well off, her father was a book agent, and her mother worked part-time in a stationery shop. But Vicky didn't seem to mind too much. From the age of 16 up until her death, she had a job in a clothing store called Strides in Felixstowe, and was saving up for driving lessons. The family were active in the community. As well as Lorinda's time running the Discoverers Children's Group, her father also managed the Trimley Red Devils under-16s, a club where her brother played on the team and her mother was secretary. According to her parents, Vicky didn't seem to have any real troubles. She wasn't seeing a serious boyfriend and she didn't drink. She was a sensible teenage girl who liked dancing and had just that summer discovered her love of clubbing and nights out with her friends. Her parents were uneasy about this, but they trusted Vicky and accepted it as part of growing up. She was nearly 18 after all, and she wouldn't be the first or last girl to see nights out as part of the pathway to adulthood. No one could ever have foreseen that one of these outings would ultimately lead to her murder. On the nights of Friday the 17th and Saturday, September the 18th, 1999, Vicky and her friend Gemma spent the evening partying in Felixstowe at the Bandbox nightclub, part of the optimistically named Grand Hotel, just close to Felixstowe's seafront. The Bandbox is now called the Grand, but still functions as a club, its exterior practically unchanged over the past 20 years. It stands on Bent Hill, one of the steep and curved streets that leads from Felixstowe's promenade inland and upwards to the main shops of the clifftop town. That fateful evening, Vicky, all five foot one of her, with blue eyes and blonde hair, wearing a black dress with shoelace straps, a brown jacket, black wedge sandals, and clutching a half-moon purse, left the bandbox with Gemma at around 1.30am. That Saturday, they had been told to take a taxi home, or to call Vicky's parents for a lift, because the previous weekend, a patron of the bandbox had been raped as she walked home in the early hours of the morning. Unfortunately, the rape meant that there were unprecedented queues for the taxi rank, and the girls instead decided to walk the two miles home to Trimley. They were together, and surely they would be safe. Their route that night 
took them first along the seafront to Bodrum Kebab Shop, where they bought chips, and removing their uncomfortable wedged shoes, they left the sea behind them and turned up Garrison Lane, walking as far as the traffic lights before turning into Walton onto the high road and eventually reaching their parting place in Trimley on the mini roundabout junction of Faulkner's Way. They said their goodbyes. Vicky promised to call Gemma the next morning, and as she walked away along the high road, Gemma called out, You'll probably hear me saying ouch on my way home, a reference to the fact that both girls were still barefoot. This was the last time that anyone other than her killer saw Vicky alive. After the disappearance, Gemma would cast her mind back to that evening walk, to the moments after the two had just separated. She'd say, I heard a scream, which I remembered on Sunday, but I cannot be sure. It may have been my imagination after everything that has happened. What did happen after the two girls parted ways remains a mystery to this day. We know that Vicky turned up Faulkner's way, and that in all likelihood she was heading for a passageway shortcut a little way up the road. The path was well lit and meandered through the estate, brushing the backs of people's gardens, cutting out the need to traverse the spine of Faulkner's Way, meaning that if Vicky managed to walk the whole route, she would have emerged about 40 yards from her parents' home. The walk should have taken no more than 3 minutes and 12 seconds, a timing we can be sure of, because it was recorded by Vicky's father Graham in the aftermath of her disappearance. According to Graham, she would have always used this particular cut-through. It was roughly 2.30am when Vicky and Gemma parted ways. It had taken them an hour to walk from the bandbox to the high road, and in the last four minutes of her route, Vicky was taken. It was 8.30 the next morning, when a frantic Graham noticed that his daughter had not returned home. He ran downstairs and looked everywhere in the house before calling Gemma and heading outside to try to find some trace of her. The estate was, as it always was on a Sunday morning, and there was no sign of his 17-year-old daughter. It's early January, a grey Saturday morning, when my research assistant, also called Gemma, and I drive up to Trimley, Felixstowe and Creating St Peter to visit the last places that Vicky was seen alive. We start in Trimley, driving the high road and turning onto Faulkner's Way, where we're surprised by its length and population. The road forms a link with the new build housing that makes up the majority of Trimley St Mary's residential neighbourhood. In the middle is a park with a children's play area, and towering over a row of houses stands a water tower, its long concrete legs a brutalist anomaly in the red brick neighbourhood. Off of either side of Faulkner's Way are cul-de-sacs and cut-throughs, but the area still feels open, a safe place to raise children. From there, we drive onwards to Felixstowe and the bandbox. Gemma grew up visiting Felixstowe as a child in the 90s 
and she remembers the area well. We park in the centre of town and walk down the steep steps to the seafront, a short hop from where the bandbox, now the grand, still stands. Felixstowe feels dingy, like any of those seaside towns hit by cheap European flights and a struggling economy. Gemma tells me about the area, the swimming pool she visited as a child, the fish and chip shop where she and her family would get takeaway to eat on a bench outside the church. She says, nothing has changed, but it's all a little more run down. We take Polaroids of the bandbox, standing on the opposite side of Bent Hill, the club curving the corner upwards to the cliff top. It's a busy side street. People hesitate before dodging in and out of our viewfinders. And on that day, everything is grey. The white paint of the building is dirty in places, and the sign chipped. The cold affects the chemicals in our films, and they come out strangely with a green tint to the images. It's a fair distance to walk from there to Trimley in your bare feet, even on a warmish September's night. And on that icy January day, I'm glad we're heading back to the van and onwards down the A14 to Creeting St Peter. Yeah, let's go back up and see if we can make this look like... I personally think it's there, like you said. I think it looks more like that one. Uh, they said it was just outside Creeting St Peter, so... I mean, maybe... Maybe we should be going that way, actually, looking at this one. What, like at the end of this road? Yeah, let's let's go that way and see. Well, this is quite ditchy down here, isn't it? There's a big ditch here. A lot of it has been, though. I've been like... And if you look at that... Oh, that is on a corner as well. Yeah. But this isn't a bridal way. What's here, though? There's and again, sign. it definitely said... Oh. There's a sign here. Hang on a second. This does look like it. Right away. Uh, so I think it's here. Personally. Yeah, that would make sense. We've driven the 25 miles between Felixstowe and Creeting St Peter, turning off at the A14 and onto Pound Road, the only route through the small village. We're doing this drive in the midst of my research, and it would be a few more days before I'd get the chance to visit the Suffolk Records office in Ipswich, where I would identify for definite that this particular bridleway and ditch are indeed the place where Vicky's body was found. We're working off of news photos from the time, and the area has changed little since then. Nowadays, there are more trees on one side, less on the other, but Creeting St Peter stands at the top of the slope, relatively undisturbed by new development, and when we face the ditch, the only buildings in sight are the ones that make up Brazier's Hall Farm. In the direction over here, it's really, really bleak. There's literally nothing overlooking. I mean, even if you go outside and kind of... It's like, you can tell there's no one overlooking you. No. Like, there's some houses back there, but I doubt they'd be able to see you from this distance. You could almost um, put your headlights on and see what you were doing, to be honest. Like, it's so remote that you probably wouldn't get spotted. Yeah. 
if I'd have actually, if we had a smaller vehicle, we could have parked facing this direction. Yeah. And then sort of. So there's houses there, and the back windows sort of look down over the field. But at two o'clock in the morning, if you were here and all the lights were out in all of those, you'd obviously know that everyone was in bed and stuff. So it's probably right here then. The, the uh, don't know where along. Later on, I find a photograph in the Suffolk Records office that shows a police car parked exactly where we stopped Gemma's van. It can be difficult to identify exact locations, working as we do primarily from news articles, but it's a worthwhile venture. We stand on the edge of the ditch. Nearby, a stone marker denotes an oil pipeline running underneath the ground. It's a Saturday afternoon, and we're there for at least ten minutes without seeing another car. In the distance, we hear the rumble of the A14, and somewhere, a police siren. But on that bridleway, we are undisturbed. Standing there, it's not at all difficult to imagine that on a September's night, under the cover of darkness, a murderer could dispose of the body of a petite young woman, and no one would see or hear a thing. aftermath of Vicky's disappearance, it soon became apparent that this was a case of foul play. By as early as the Tuesday morning, newspapers were reporting that police were looking into the possibility of abduction, and they began to make house-to-house calls. Residents could see men in blue overalls carrying sticks, searching St Mary's Green in the centre of the estate, and above their heads was the constant whir of a helicopter equipped with infrared search cameras. Despite the intensity of the search, it returned no sign of Vicky, who by then was already dead at Creating St Peter. But in the five days before the discovery of her body, house-to-house calls began to give police an idea of the moments after the two friends parted at the Faulkner's Way junction. They soon learned that in the normally quiet streets, two screams and the sounds of a car had been heard at around 2.30 that Sunday morning. One resident, feeling unwell, had gone downstairs to make himself a cup of tea, and it was then he heard the screams, followed by the sounds of a throaty, or perhaps faulty exhaust, as a car sped away. The man leading the investigation, Detective Superintendent Roy Lambert, was quoted as saying, Everyone who heard the screams heard the car as well. Even 20 years on, there seems to be little doubt that these were the sounds of Vicky's abduction. The Twin Trimleys and the area including Felixstowe are close-knit communities and the teenager's murder hit them hard. In the five days leading up to the discovery of her body, the East Anglian Daily Times was filled with stories of her disappearance. One of their reporters, Sarah Forth, was invited to do the only interview Vicky's parents would give while their daughter was still a missing person and their faces filled the pages of the newspaper for days on end. Lorinda Hall said, As soon as Victoria went missing, we knew there was something wrong. It's so totally out of character. She would have phoned us. I know she would. 
As she spoke, the drone of a search helicopter could be heard above the house. Lorinda continued, Nobody's perfect, but she doesn't give us any trouble. She studies hard. She's a good girl. She's a lovely little girl, and we just want her back. I mentioned earlier in the episode that a woman had been raped in Spa Gardens just after she'd left the bandbox a week prior to Vicky's murder. And there was another crime as well. Reports of a young woman being followed on the Friday night, just a day before Vicky's disappearance. The rape, the stalking, and then the murder, all in the space of a couple of weeks, prompted the mayor of Felixstowe to say, I don't believe that the people responsible for Felixstowe believe that we have adequate policing. As far as I can establish, none of these crimes were ever solved. And in the aftermath of the murder, the people of Felixstowe and the surrounding villages were living in fear. The night after Vicky's body was discovered, reporters interviewed young women at the bandbox. There were 30% more taxis on the street that night. And Amy, a friend of Vicky's from school who was at the club for her birthday, said, We are definitely taking taxis home. There is no question about that. We are sticking together. It is terrible. And we feel so sorry for Vicky and her family. Vicky was one of my friends, and we will never be able to forget what has happened. The bandbox held a minute's silence that night, and the only sounds to break the quiet of the room were those of soft crying. A 21-year-old man was arrested at his home in East Ipswich at about 5.25am. He was arrested on suspicion of abduction and is currently being held and will be dis uh, questioned by detectives. And still no sign of Vicky? No, as yet we have been un unable to locate her. It was on the day before the discovery of Vicky's body that a man was briefly arrested and charged with her abduction. He was a boyfriend of hers. I can't establish whether their relationship was current, but I believe that he had been seen with Vicky in the band box the night before she went missing. And in such a high-profile case, there was plenty of pressure on police to make an arrest. And a boyfriend, or ex, is always a reasonable place to start. He was released on bail the day after he was questioned, and as far as I can tell, all charges were dropped shortly after. Though, this man wasn't the only person who would be arrested in relation to Vicky's case. And the next suspect would make it all the way to Norwich Crown Court, where he would stand charged with her murder. I always wonder about including the details of someone's arrest when it ultimately leads to an acquittal. But in this case, I think it's interesting that police felt they could press charges against this man with what you'll hear is very little in the way of solid evidence. I won't use his name, though. It's publicly accessible with very little effort. But I'll just call him A. It was December of 2000, a year and three months after Vicky's death, the 27-year-old A, owner of a Felix Doe Free newspaper and formerly of Trimley St Mary's, was charged with her murder. He remained in custody until November of 2001, when the jury at Norwich Crown Court took just 90 minutes to clear him of all charges. 
The case against A appeared to be the following. In the early morning of September the 19th, 1999, A and some friends left the Bambox nightclub and took a taxi to Trimley St Mary, where A was dropped close to the location where Vicky was last seen. When first interviewed by police, A told them that he had been dropped outside his home, about half a mile away from where Vicky went missing. But later, the other passengers in the taxi debunked his statement. He had actually been dropped just a few hundred yards away from her last known location. This was around 2.30 in the morning, roughly the same time that Vicky and Gemma were saying goodbye on the mini roundabout junction of Faulkner's Way. A told the court that he had drunk around 10 pints and several vodkas that night. His father lived right near that junction, and A would often park his car, a distinctive throaty blue Porsche 944, on the driveway when he went on a night out. Remember Detective Superintendent Roy Lambert saying, everyone who heard the screams heard the car as well. That car had a distinctive throaty or faulty sound to the exhaust, not dissimilar to that of the Porsche. When police searched A's car for evidence a fair few months after the murder, they found a number of soil particles which their experts said exactly matched those around the site of Vicky's body. These samples could be easily explained, if they even came from the scene at all, a fact that was brought into doubt at the trial. In the days after the discovery of her body, A, the owner of a free newspaper, like so many other people, made the trip to Creating St Peter to report on Vicky's case. This was backed up in court by a friend who had accompanied him on the trip, and those soil samples. The defence had an expert testify that they could have come from anywhere in East Anglia. This was the crux of the case against A. The sound of a car like his that pulled away fast following screams in the neighbourhood, and a few specks of soil collected months after the murder that could have come from Creating St Peter, or perhaps from anywhere in the region. It's unsurprising that the jury took such little time to find him innocent. Speaking outside the court, Vicky's father Graham told reporters, Everyone was under the misapprehension that an arrest or charge would mean something. It does not make any difference. It's good for the police to have done their job and got to the stage where they could charge someone, but it just doesn't make any difference. We were never desperate for it to have been him, because it would not have helped us. I keep thinking, if he's not guilty, then he should be freed, and we've never said we wanted revenge. It's not him, and unfortunately the bloke has been in prison for a year and has lost part of his life. It seems that what Vicky's family needed, and still need, is not someone to be found guilty, but for an omission. For someone to say, I was there, I did it, and this is the reason why. From the time of A's acquittal, there has never been another arrest in the case, and police appear to have hit a dead end. But there is another tentative suspect, a serial killer who is currently serving life for his murders. A man who was living in a flat in Trimley St Mary at the same time as Vicky's disappearance. Steve Wright began using prostitutes in the 1980s when he worked as a steward on the QE2 cruise liner. During the trial, he told the jury the practice was considered normal by other crew members who used them when travelling abroad. Wright continued to pay for sex during the time he worked in the pub trade 
and often travelled to Ipswich from Felixstowe to visit massage parlours. But it was when he moved to Ipswich with his partner that he began to frequent the town's red light district. It was also where he met his victims. The bodies of Gemma Adams, Tanya Nicholl, Annalee Alderton, Paula Clonell and Annette Nichols were found during a 10-day period in December 2006. Their murders led to one of Britain's biggest manhunts. I can't imagine that you could have an interest in true crime without having heard of Steve Wright. Between October and December of 2006, he killed five women, all prostitutes working in Ipswich's red light district. I'm not going to go into detail concerning these murders here. There is enough information out there to fill multiple episodes, which is exactly what Andy of the No Remorse podcast is currently doing. I'll leave a link in the description box if you want to listen to the No Remorse podcast and find out more information on Steve Wright's crimes. I lived near to Ipswich at the time of the murders. I remember how disturbing it felt to be that close to evil. Every day the news ran stories on the women, first missing and then found murdered. I once had my poetry complimented by an author who I later googled only to discover that he was considered a suspect in the case, and later wrote a book about the killings, a self-published mix of poetry and mixed media entitled Ipswich 06. Gemma, my research assistant, lived in Ipswich until relatively recently, and even knew the family members of one of the girls. In this part of England, it's still impossible to escape the mark that Steve Wright left on the community. Obviously, there are many differences between the murders of the five women in Ipswich and that of Vicky Hall. But the thing they all have in common is that, like Vicky, all the women were found naked, but with no signs of sexual assault having taken place. They had all probably been asphyxiated or strangled, except in two cases where it was difficult to establish a cause of death because the victims had been left in water. Again, this was similar to Vicky's murder, there's not much to go on as far as a suspect goes, and I don't think I would even include Steve Wright, if it wasn't for one more fact. Remember I mentioned a young woman who had been followed by a car the night before Vicky's death? That woman managed to get a partial registration number. All the vehicles in the area which contained that number were located through the police national computer, and Steve Wright's name was one of almost 2,000 that were flagged up. At the time, there was no reason to interview him, and since his arrest, police have publicly stated that they don't believe he was responsible for Vicky's murder. But at the very least, it remains a strange coincidence, in a case with no witnesses and very little forensic evidence. It seems likely that back in 1999, someone who lived either local to Felixstowe or to Creeting St Peter was responsible for Vicky's death. The road on which she was discovered is small and isolated. Now, as ever, it remains relatively unknown outside of the Creeting area. For the close-knit community of Trimley St Mary, life continued on. 
but always there was the image of a murderer stalking the neighbourhood. Parents had to continue to let their children grow up and find their feet in the adult world, and girls carried on walking home from nights out. But they didn't forget what had happened to Vicky. Ten years on, retired Detective Sergeant Chris Kushnahan, who lived in the Trimley area, said, Trimley is a close-knit community, and people still talk about it today. People don't forget. The impact is still there. If there's a murder of a young girl anywhere in the country, someone in the village always remembers the murder of Victoria Hall. As with the killings in Ipswich, a community changed because of Vicky's death. For her family, there are plenty of unanswered questions. Her father Graham once said, only the person who did it can explain why they dumped her at Creating St Peter and why they didn't give her a chance. This is the heart of the matter. Since September of 1999, a family have lived with the murder of their daughter, a happy 17-year-old girl who loved to dance and wanted to study sociology. For them, they do not want just a guilty verdict. They want to know why their daughter was killed. Without new evidence or a confession, and as we reach the 20-year anniversary of her killing, it becomes less and less likely that they will ever find answers. After Vicky's death, flowers appeared at that ditch in Creating St Peter. Beside them was an anonymous note. It read, Didn't know you, but thinking of you and your family. Twenty years later, and it's still true. I can't think of any better way to sum up my feelings on the murder of Vicky Hall. I didn't know you, but I'm thinking of you and your family. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Outlines podcast. If you want to see photographs and news clippings related to the case, then you can do so at www.theoutlinespodcast.com. I'd like to say a quick thank you to Paul of the True Crime Enthusiast, who has become my latest patron on Patreon. And if you're interested in joining Paul and supporting the show, you can follow the links in the description box or visit the website for more details. This episode of Outlines was researched, written, performed and produced by Jess Carter with additional research by Gemma Frost. The music was composed by Elias Harding.